Hey guys, I'm Jay. And I'm A. And you're listening to Recipe and ID. Hey guys, welcome back. We are on to episode 46. Nope, episode 4. We're not that old yet. We're still a toddler. <laughs> um, so, what we, are we talking about today? I mean, well, we're probably going to talk about food and crime, I think. Maybe. Weird. Maybe Weird. just a little bit. Um, I did want to give a good shout out to the people that have rated and reviewed us. Um, we haven't really gotten any many many more new reviews since the last time we threw out this episode, but I will be very honest, we are kind of pre-recording this one, so we're a little ahead of the game on this one. Um, but we're excited to see the people on it, and we are very happy to announce that we are officially on Spotify, which is great. Um, I hate them, but they did it, finally. Don't say you hate them. They're going to take us out of their algorithm. I, I love you, Spotify. You're my best friend. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Sponsored by Spotify. We're not sponsored. No, we by are not, not sponsored, sponsored by Spotify. We're not sponsored by anybody yet. Unless you want to sponsor us. Yeah, if you want to sponsor us, reach out. Recipe and ID at gmail.com. Ba-bam. Ba-bam. Um, speaking of recipe and ID at gmail.com, we are available on all the social medias. We all give our them. handles at the end, but we are on everything. So check us out. We give updates. We post pictures. We're on the TikToks. A posts TikToks of his recipes. I do. They're fun. Um, yeah. So we're on all those things. We're on all the things. All the things. All of them. And we love you guys. Those of you guys that are listening, we do love you. We're so excited that we have people that listen to us. We do really appreciate it. It's weird because I feel like a lot of the people who listen, obviously, are people we know right now. I don't know that we've reached a wide audience yet, yet being the keyword. But um, those people that I know that have listened have given me some feedback and i've enjoyed it and i really appreciate them listening and yeah we and we also love to see that you guys we want to blah 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 blah, blah. <laughs> cool story <laughs> yeah i know i'm really good at that <laughs> we like to see those kind of comments you guys on facebook and all that stuff too so don't hesitate to reach out we absolutely love it i know you guys probably see us on a daily basis so there's probably not a reason to reach out but but interaction is fun on the internet it is on the social medias that's right all right um so today's episode four. It's not really. And we themed. don't have a theme. Yeah, we're not. We're back to the non-themed. I think we really only themed the Two. first episode for the firsts, and, and then Valentine's our last Day. episode for Valentine's Day. Yeah. So, so I think we're moving into a stretch that's probably not going to be themed. Yours won't be, which is fine. Mine kind of will be for oh, a little bit. Fancy. Uh, so what are what are you covering today? So today, uh, well, actually, I'm going to go into my little reminder. So. Um, not a reminder, but an update. So I was kind of trying to find a way that I could uh, reach some people on like fast food and kind of get a good balance between fast food and regular food because the last one I went over was a regular home-cooked meal and a lot of the recipes I've kind of gone over have been home-cooked meal recipes, which I mean, obviously, if they're going to be recipes, they're going to be like that. But I did tell you that I would kind of try and get into the, some copycat realm as well as some of the fun like statistic stuff which is kind of fun to talk about so we are going to get into what i like to call the top 100 so from 2000 2020 there has been a log of the top 100 fast food items that have made it onto the menus in the united states 
Um, and this is actually across the world. So it actually is a very much broader reach than I thought it would be. And although I'm going to touch on the 100, I'm probably going to end up doing two episodes from my top 100, followed by an episode of random food that we'll go over. And then we'll go through that route as we go through it. And then if I can't find a random food, I'll throw in another one of the 100. But I think it's very interesting and I'm really excited about the first episode, which will be the next episode we go over will be the first of the number 100 food on the list from 2000 to 2020, which will be very interesting. You like Casey Kasem on the Country Countdown. Yeah, you know, Country Countdown. Sorry. Okay, well, let's get into this. So mine today is actually beef stroganoff. Oh. Isn't that fun? That's one of my favorites. Yeah. I mean, it is a lot of people's favorites, which is very interesting to think about. So what nationality do you think that beef stroganoff is? I kind of gave it away to you already before we had the episode. You did. You and I talked about it when I was making dinner tonight. I did. But But I did not realize what nationality it was. So for those of you that don't know, beef stroganoff is actually a Russian dish, though you will learn that it's not exclusively Russian. So... We'll get into that a little more when we talk about this. So uh, beef stroganoff or beef stroganov, which is the Russian dish, is sautéed pieces of beef served in a sauce and smenata, which is a uh, sour cream. I am going to warn you guys, my Russian is not super great. I'm going to try my hardest to get through my Russian pr- pronunciations. I haven't done Russian in a very long time. So, so is the man who speaks like eight languages. Stop talking. Yeah, okay. Uh, from its origins in the mid-19th century Russia, it has become popular around the world with considerable variations from the original recipe. So there are a lot of very interesting nuances that kind of play into the social cultural constructs of each nation, which will be really interesting to get into. So uh, let's start at the beginning. Elena Matoskovich, a uh, classic Russian book called a, Gr- a Gift to Young Housewives, gives the first recipe of Gatchiana... Okay. Gayavin Postroganovsky says Gontchetia, which means beef a la stroganov, in, which means like in a stroganov sauce with mustard. So beef stroganov. It's So it's beef in a stroganov sauce with mustard. I know. So, I was kidding. So the best way to it's beef pieces in a stroganoff sauce and we'll talk about a stroganoff what a stroganoff sauce is because it's very interesting to think what a stroganoff sauce is and then with mustard so obviously a stroganoff sauce does not have mustard in it i want to make that very clear from the very beginning yeah jay's giving me a weird look why it doesn't it does not because every stroganoff recipe i've made has called for mustard and that's what beef stroganoff became but originally beef stroganoff was just beef in a stroganoff sauce. So um, this is from the, from 1871 edition. The recipe involves beef cubes, so cubed beefs, not strips, which is what everyone sees, strips of beef, prepared in a dry marinade of salt and allspice, which is also a very Russian thing, uh, and then sautéed in butter. Um, this is your stroganoff sauce. Uh, a remoulade or a, a butter sauce is a very French way of making food, mm-hmm. which is very well known as being a French sauce. And then the sauce... Back, back up a little bit. Yeah. Did you say allspice? Yeah. I've never used allspice in beef stroganoff no. either. Most people don't. And we'll explain why you don't use allspice anymore, really. Um, but it, it's been taken over because allspice isn't something else that you add to your... Okay. So we'll get into that. All right. I'm listening. Yeah. So it's salt and allspice. Very interesting, right? Um, so the sauce is a simple roux, which those of the general roux, what a roux is, it's uh, equal parts butter, cream, and flour. So, uh, And then it's prepared with mustard and then the broth from the meat. 
Uh, and then it's finished with a small amount of sour cream. No onions, no mushrooms, no alcohol. Very strange, right? That doesn't surprise me because I don't use alcohol in mine. You don't. I've not I've not used alcohol in You'd any of mine. You'd be surprised how many recipes actually call for it, though. It, it doesn't surprise me that it it calls for it sometimes, but none of the recipes I've yeah the recipe used yeah, I say the recipe we we're gonna go with today. It. Uh, it does have alcohol in it, but you'll see why I add alcohol to mine, which is a it's okay. So you mentioned that typically it's it's strips of steak yeah. or beef. And the original, like, rustic recipe called for cubed beef. Well, my aunt made, growing up, it was my favorite. We called it beef stroganoff, but it was really, like, backcountry kitchen beef stroganoff. Like, she used ground beef. Oh, yeah. And it was, like... Just so everyone knows, Jay uh, and I's favorite beef stroganoff is... um, the hamburger helper kind, which calls for ground beef, and the hamburger helper packet that goes into it. So don't judge us on that one. We really do like that one a lot. I love that one, but I'm not saying it's... it's my favorite. Oh, really? Yeah, my favorite was that low calorie one we found. Oh, that one was really good. Which is what, the one I'm the recipe I'm gonna give today is very similar to that. It's okay. not low calorie. I'm warning you, it's not low calorie, but it is very <laughs> similar. It's a very similar base and sauce. Okay. All right, so it's almost unrecognizable as the beef stroganoff you would see today. Like, legitimately, it says it in throughout through almost everything I've read. It's become one of those things. So in 1891, the French chef Charles Bier, uh, who was working in St. Petersburg at the time, submitted a recipe for beef stroganoff to a competition sponsored by the French magazine Les Arts Culinaires, um, which it's just uh it's a it's a recipe contest they do every year essentially um this was what caused la russe gosto gosto oh my gosh gastronomique uh which is it translates as the encyclopedia of gastronomy it's the um the french book of like all their recipes i wish every country had this book because it's literally a historical reference of every recipe that's considered classically french Beef stroganoff is in this book. But I thought you said it was a Russian dish. <laughs> See, See, I can take I can take clues. He took that contact clue, everybody. everybody he wanted he looked, me to yeah. ask, but I thought it was yeah. Russian. Yeah, so the majority of the book is about French cuisine and contains recipes for French dishes and cooking techniques. So you might ask, why would a French book contain a recipe called beef stroganoff? Like, why is that a thing? Uh, and many, and that we have to, to kind of get into that context, we have to talk about the stroganoffs. Uh, for those of you that don't know who the Stroganoffs are, they are a very—they were a very wealthy. Um, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm so sorry. They are a very wealthy Russian family. But what I wanted to get on that was that many of the super wealthy Russian upper class uh, were obsessed with Parisians, with Paris specifically. They were obsessed with it. So uh, at home in Russia, they maintained what we would consider a bicultural atmosphere. So that is, they sent their sons and daughters to French schools. Um, their staff, their houses were staffed by fr- French maids and French governesses. So their their children understood the Parisian way of life. And then um, they also obviously had French chefs, mm-hmm. right? Which is the quintessential. Um, the, uh, high end that you could possibly get uh tolstoy who wrote the famous book war and peace actually wrote the original book in french and russian so by backing going back and forth between the languages because he was very confident that his audience knew both languages that was that's how confident he was that the upper class were the only ones who were going to read his book and that's how prevalent french was in russian uh, um aristocracy Society. aristocracy it's really more of the aristocrats not okay. not even necessarily 
society because really um when we start getting to like the czar and this um which is the royal family of russia when you start getting into that level it's almost it's a completely different group it's as if you you not only are they wealthy but they are extremely exclusive um so the stroganovs and or stroganovs french spelling is actually stroganov the normal one with the off in the actual russian pronunciation it's s-t-r-g-a-n-o-v not f so stroganov with the v Stroganov, which is the almost the bastardization of the of the name in French, uh, were a family of highly successful Russian merchants, industrialists, landowners, and statesmen. Um, they were they they were the quintessential Russian royal family, uh, Russian aristocracy. Um, they had been around since Ivan the Great in the fifteen thirty three, and at that time they were already wealthy. They were already extremely wealthy family. Um, they were the richest businessmen in the Tsardom of Russia. They franchised the Russian conquest of, Ser of Serbia, uh, Siberia in, 1950 in the 1580s, and then Prince Podovsky in 1612 for their con conquest of Moscow uh, from the Poles, which hmm. is very interesting. So it's an extremely old family with an extremely long history of being just extremely wealthy. Okay. <laughs> right? Um, so all agree that this dish is the perfect combination of what they would call French and Russian culture and the aristocracy. So the brownie of the meat in a pan with a sauce and then flavoring it with mustard was classically and quintessentially French. Like that is how you make a French steak. Right. And then um, while adding sour cream to beef and like a dairy of some kind was a very common Russian favorite combination for many, many dishes. Um, however the recipe came came to be there really are many variations so there's a lot of people that say that the really truly authentic Parisian Russian dish is the Charles Bier who was the one that actually submitted it to that contest while it is almost comical how sophisticatedly simple the original one was from the house from a gift to a housewife um, in like the early 19, 1871, which is much, much earlier than that one. They're very similar, but there are quintessentially different. Um, there are varieties of the dish and everyone sees that when you get out, when you start to get to those ancient time, that older time, especially when you're talking about dishes like this. Um, beef stroganoff quickly became extremely, uh, became a sensation first in Russia. And then where do you think it went to next? France? See, and I would have thought France too, but no, it did not. America? It, no. Oh. It became extremely, like, almost obsessively popular in China. Oh. Specifically Shanghai. Um, and the reason that is is because in the 1920s, um, Shanghai was known as the Paris of the East. It was almost like the Parisian version in Asia, in the Asian cultures. Um, beef stroganoff preparation varies significantly, not, not only based on geographical location, but also based on the factors uh, as other factors as well, um, such as the cut of meat and the seasoning that you select for it. Um, some varies include mushrooms and onions, while others vary varies with seasonings like sugar, salt, black pepper, bottled marinades, like Worcestershire sauce, and rubs. Right? Okay. Um, so, essentially, we'll get into each one's individual variety as you get into it, because uh, you can clearly see the, the timeline of how beef stroganoff traveled uh, from Russia to China and then essentially from China to other countries. So we'll get into it. So the traditional Russian variety of beef, uh, variety for beef stroganoff is the beef cubes, not strips, prepared in a dry marinade with salt and allspice and then sauteed in butter. 
Uh, and then in that sauce, you also have a simple roux with flour and butter um, or lard, because lard was really popular at that time, mixed with prepared mustard and broth. And then it's finished with a small amount of sour cream served next to crispy potato straws. That is the quintessential Russian version of beef stroganoff. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, what are some noticeable differences? Like, what would you say is the most noticeable difference for you? Potatoes. Right? I would never have put them with potatoes, but potato straws were are like the quintessential side dish to most main dishes. That's the starch for beef stroganoff. Like, I always see it with noodles. Always yeah. see it with pasta. I always make it with pasta. Yeah, it's always a thing. I don't think I'd like it on potatoes. I, I think it'd be weird, but uh, mashed potatoes are a really common, um, common one in <laughs> the United States. Shocking. Well, but specifically in... I don't even know what that region is called. It's not Midwest. It's to the west of the Midwest. So like Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, Idaho. I don't know what that is. Midwest. The Great Plains. Great Plains. But it's the Midwest. Yeah. The Midwest is just everything that's not the East or the West. West Coast. Okay. Well, that's fine. Because there's no, I've never heard like Mid-East. I think it's the Great Plains for some reason. But, yeah. in my head. But it's like the Great Plains area because Midwest mm. is not because like our Midwest is governed by Chicago, Nashville, Tennessee. And we'll talk about those kind of varieties in just right. a second. But like mashed potatoes were quintessential Minnesota, South Dakota, Idaho, North Dakota. Well, they've got the hot dish, don't you know? Yeah. The hot dishes are very popular. We'll go over what hot dishes are in a little bit if you guys don't know what a hot dish is, but. Um, but yeah, that was a common one. Now, Chinese variety, because that was the next variety that you're going to see. Um, this dish included tomato paste in the recipe. So um, it became very common for most Chinese restaurants to have tomato or tomato-based sauces, especially when you're talking about um, Western Europe. And everything for China is West. So they're the East. Like, they're the most East that you can possibly be. They're the East, and Juliet is the Sun. Yeah. So, yeah. so everything for them is the West. So whenever they talked about making something from the West, they would add tomatoes to it because it was a very common thing. I just add tomatoes to it, right? Um, but they serve theirs over rice, which is obviously very common for Chinese foods, especially in that area. That checks out. Um, but they excluded cream and sour cream from their recipes. You know why? Because they don't like beef stroganoff. <laughs> I feel like you take those two things away and put it over rice. Everyone always says that, but like dairy is a very French and Western Europe European thing. Sour cream is really not a thing in China, but it's a dairy based sauce, even in its original uh, form. Yeah, yeah, I can. I agree with you. I got issues with the illness of China. Okay, all right. You know what? I'm just saying. Yeah, I can appreciate that. I would love to try it over rice, though. I feel like it might be very tasty over rice. It would rice. probably be very good over rice. With its original. long as there's dairy in it. <laughs> not tomato sauce. Yeah, no, not tomatoes. That's like spaghetti over rice. No. Okay. <laughs> now, the recipe didn't arrive to the United States until the 1920s and early 30s. Um, this was carried by two major factors. Um, the number one was the, vo- that was the fall of the Tsardom in Russia. Um, that's when all the Tsar, Tsar Nicholas... Obviously, that's a fun family. word. Czar. Zardom. Zardom. Yeah, it's very fun. Uh, in 1917, and the immigrants that came to the United States trying to bring a bit of home to the restaurants and hotel scene in our in our our 
land, essentially. A prime example of this is the famous Russian Tea Room in New York City was opened in 1927, which is almost like the quintessential opening of Russian restaurants. And very, um, it's that whole aristocracy that was forced to immigrate from Russia because uh, for those of you that don't know, the fall of the Tsardom was really... Um, the peasants that were being treated so poorly and the lower class was being treated so poorly um, essentially killed off all the upper class. Um, there's a lot more to that and there is, but that's the best way you can think. It. So you have to think about the immigrants that are coming from Russia at this point are not poor people trying to like leave. They are the very, very wealthy leaving the country because they are... Um, concerned for their lives essentially so they came to the united states and they they didn't have home here so they created their own home so they created uh restaurants and hotels that had their favorite foods which included these kind of things now that's one that's specifically one area the other example of this is that russian and chinese immigrants as well as u.s servicemen stationed in pre-communist china uh, brought several varieties of the dish home. This is pre-World War II, so it was in the 1950s where it kind of got varieties of this began to show up all over the United States. Um, and then what do you think nailed in the coffin for it becoming like prime cuisine for the United States? You're going to love this. It's delicious. <laughs> I mean, it is delicious. It really what more is. do you need? Uh, dinner parties. Remember in the 50s, that whole like bring your friends over and have a dinner party. Like that was like the thing in the 50s. I don't remember I wasn't there. Well, of course he was there. <laughs> He's lying to everybody. No, I was not. But you know, but, you but know, I do know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. The whole I'm dinner just, party I'm area just kidding. Uh, really nailed down the recipe in American culture it, for several reasons. It was very simple and easy to make. Uh, it was extremely, it was considered extremely decadent. There was not a lot of instructions to it. And you guys will notice when I go over the recipe for this, it's it's a very simple dish. There's not a lot. I feel to like, it. It's, depending on the cut of meat you get, it would also be fairly cost effective. It's very. I mean, it's relatively very co not cost. Yeah. It's very cost effective because you could do stew meat. It, right. It's, you could stew this for a couple for a while and get get away with that. Well, and like you like like we talked about briefly in the beginning, like my family used ground beef. Yeah, I like I said, was... it's totally fine with ground beef. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then British pubs in the 1930s, right around the same time that the United States kind of brought it into a thing, began to serve it on their own variant of the dish. Uh, usually served the version of with the cream sauce and a white wine sauce like you would see from the Parisian version of it with mushrooms. Uh, whereas a more authentic version or what they would consider a more authentic version was actually a red stew, which does have a tomato based center, but also had mustard in it. Um, and then with a scoop of sour cream on top of it. But it was more of like a stew. That sounds like a chili. Well, you have to read it. They don't really have chili. There's not really a chili in... Well, that's a lie. There's a chili nowadays. There's probably chili there as well. But uh, for those of you that really don't have that, there's not really a lot of, like, chili things. There's not a lot of Mexican food in general in that kind of area. So, like, cumin and chili powder. and those. That's, that's not really a British or I would UK just say thing. the red sauce with the meat and the thing. It's a very, it sounds like chili. It does kind of sound like chili. Now, we're going to get into the French version. So, the French version is what kind of paved the way for the American version and the Russian version and like the Parisian version really truly hit hit home. So this dish is listed in the actual um I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher this word and I, my French is really good and I can't believe I'm butchering this. It drives me crazy. La Russe Gastronomique, uh, which is uh the like the, the gastronomy book. For those who don't know what a gastronomy means, 
uh, we've all heard about gastropubs, which uses gastronomy as its whole thing. Um, yeah, they stole that word from the anthropologists, and we're going to take it back by force if we have to. Um, it's the study of food in society. Like, it's literally an actual studied course that you do in anthropology. Gastronomy is? Yeah, gastro. I thought it was a science. It's, yeah. I mean, I know anthropology is a science. That's, <laughs> I know that. But I, I, I often think of anthropology more as a study. I thought gastronomic, gastronomy. gastronomy was like the tapioca balls and that stuff. Oh, that yeah. They, they 100% stole that word to make use. their own thing. But its quintessential definition oh. is the study of society and the food that you eat. Fancy. Yep. Yeah, so we're going to take it back. So you were learning, people. Yep. Um, it's the most popularized version of the dish uh, and stems from where the U.S. and many of the other traditional versions came from. It is strips of beef sautéed in paprika, and then you add cream to the cr to create the sauce. It's commonly used with white wine to until you create a, a sauce, and then it's served on top of pasta. The recipe states that mustard or tomato paste can be added optionally, but may be added depending on taste. Um, for those of you that don't know, our quintessential version in the United States uses mustard powder in our in our sauce to kind of give it its quintessential taste when you're trying to get for it. Um, but it is not unheard of to add tomato paste to it as well. I know that Jay kind of miffed that one a bit, but he's not very happy about it. But that's what it is. So um, we're going to get into the recipe. Um, for those of you that uh, are interested in this recipe, this is actually, um, for those of you that may love meat and i know i did beef stroke beef stroganoff this version is actually a vegetarian stroganoff Boo! says my husband the meat and potato carnivore um this was requested I by that i am born and raised in the midwest i know we use it's meat in my blood um so i have two very close friends that are vegetarians uh, and they did actually ask me to do a couple of vegetarian dishes. This is not my only vegetarian dish. Next week will also be a vegetarian dish. Two vegetarian dishes in a row? Well, you'll know why ne next week's has to be vegetarian. You know what next week's is. It's going to be vegetarian. Calm down. Sorry. It's not donut. You guys can all tip your noses on me as much as you want. But next as week's one is... As long as you don't tease me with beef in that title, too. I won't tease anybody with beef in that title at all. All right. Okay, sorry, I didn't have myself again. So, mushroom stroganoff. So, I'm going to go through the ingredients with you guys. This is going to be your quintessential stroganoff variety, and I will tell you where you can add meat if you want to add meat to this recipe because it is extremely good with meat. It is extremely good without meat. Um, and this is actually almost a copycat recipe of Noodles and Company's beef stroganoff. So, it is not the exact same. I will warn you, it is slightly different. Uh, I actually don't love Noodles and Company's beef stroganoff. I wish it had a little more mustard to it because it does need a little bit of a zip. For those of you that love it, obviously you can remove some of the mustard if you want to. I like it. Jay, Jay does like it. So uh, we're going to start off with a pound of white egg noodles. That is about half a bag of your standard bag of egg noodles. Three tablespoons of butter divided evenly into a tablespoon increments. One small white onion thinly diced. Four cloves of garlic minced one pound of baby bell mushrooms i will highly recommend doing baby bells but any ones you have shiitake or other ones they are very tasty uh we like oyster mushrooms a lot they're really really good they give you a nice like almost seafoody taste uh, if you're not into seafood then stay with your baby bells they're delicious 
um, half cup of dry white wine. Um, you can use a Pinot Gris, a Marsala, um, a Sauvignon Blanc. Those are all great white dry white wines. They're pretty solid. If you're going to use a Marsala, I'm just going to warn you, Marsala is a little sweeter than what you'd expect to use for it. If you like to be on the sweeter end, that's fine. I would just highly recommend adding another tablespoon of Worcestershire sauce to compensate for the sweetness. But you can use Marsala. It's going to be more like a mushroom Marsala if you do it that way, but that's up to you. Uh, one and a half cups of vegetable stock, one tablespoon Worcestershire sauce, one tablespoon Dijon mustard, three and a half tablespoons of flour, a fourth table teaspoon dry dry thyme, and then a half cup of sour cream. I missed a run. Oh, I'm so sorry. And then a fourth teaspoon of paprika. What was the measurement on the thyme? A fourth teaspoon. Okay. Fourth teaspoon, fourth teaspoon, thyme and paprika. Perfect. What do you think it was? I wasn't sure because you stumbled a little bit and oh, you sorry. started with table and then fourth teaspoon dried thyme and a fourth teaspoon of paprika perfect yep i just didn't i i couldn't figure out which one you were going for yeah, sorry it's okay no worries so cook your egg noodles um to al dente jay and i are actually not al dente people i'm not an al dente person i'm italian and i will be whipped with a noodle for the rest of my life i don't like a chewy noodle that's what she said all right generously salted water according she to she did not <laughs> <laughs> she um, might have. So you're going to want to generously wa salt your water. I say this every time. My grandma always said it. If your water doesn't taste like the ocean, you have not salted your water enough. <laughs> um, according to the package instructions, uh, for example, if you're going to add it, base your water based on the total, total number of uh, pasta you're going to add. Generally speaking, a cup of pasta needs two cups of water to boil. Just a heads up. So, And egg noodles tend to double in size, so make sure you have plenty of space. Uh, melt one tea tablespoon of butter. Oh, I'm going to warn you um, for good timing on this one. It's, I highly recommend um, actually adding the egg noodles to your boiling water when you add the vegetable stock to your sauce. So when we get to the vegetable stock and the sauce preparation, you'll know that's when you're going to put your, your noodles into, into its system. So uh, melt one tablespoon of butter in a large saute pan over medium heat. Add onions and saute for about five minutes, stirring occasionally. Um, at this point, you're going to want to get them to what we call half done. So the edges are slightly translucent, but you can still see the ribbing of white and the inside of it. Um, you can dice your onions. I would highly, highly recommend quartering your onion and then cutting it into strips. So half your white onion, then half it again, and then slice it down until you get your half strips, essentially, or your fourth strips from your full onion. Uh, add the remaining two tablespoons of butter, garlic, and mushrooms, and then stir to combine. I'm going to tell you at this point, your house is going to smell amazing because it's mushrooms, onions, and butter, and ooh, so good. Uh, you can add a little bit of salt to the, at this point, salt and pepper. It's just a pinch to taste. Um, check it, obviously. Now, continue sauteing for an additional five to seven minutes until the mushrooms have cooked and become tender. Um... I'm going to warn you, mushrooms tend to shrink down, so err on the side of more rather than less, because if you're going to go for the true vegetarian dish for this one, you're going you're gonna to need these mushrooms because they're kind of the bread and butter of your, the meat and potatoes of your, of your dish, I should say. More than meat. Imposter. Impostable. Whoops, sorry. Okay, I'll keep going. Uh, and then, so then you're going to add your white wine and deglaze your pan. So I would almost crank up your heat a little bit and then add the white wine. You're going to hear it, Chris. For those of you that listen to my shrimp scampi one, you know what deglazing means. But essentially what it is is it's scraping those bits of brown deliciousness from the bottom of your pan to incorporate it into your sauce. Uh, make sure you use a wooden spoon. I know that's a super French thing to say. I would say use a wooden spoon because it just seems to work better. I don't know. I like wooden spoons. Uh, and then let the sauce simmer for about three minutes, okay? 
Meanwhile, in a separate bowl, whisk together your vegetable stock, Worcestershire sauce, mustard, flour, and then until smooth, right? You're going to get a nice smoothie, smooth consistency. And then pour the vegetable stock and mixture into your pan along with the thyme and the paprika and then stir to combine, right? And this is when you start your noodles. Context clues. Context clues. Perfect. Uh, let the mixture simmer for about five minutes, stirring occasionally until slightly until the mixture begins to slightly thicken. Um, at this point is when you're going to add your sour cream. Uh, you add your sour cream to it uh, evenly throughout the sauce and then mix it together. Right? And then taste uh, and season with generous pinch of salt and pepper as needed. Um, I'm going to warn you. If your sauce starts to taste sour or gets too sour for you, you can bring it back a little bit by adding a little more um, of your pasta water to your mix itself. It'll dilute it a little bit. You have to let it simmer for a little bit longer, but it will help. Uh, and then, obviously, you're going to put your noodles down on your plate, and then you're going to pour your sauce on top of it, and it will be delicious. I promise you. It is so tasty. Now, for my carnivores in the audience, I'm going to tell you right now. That That's me. I'm the carnivore. Yeah, that thyme and paprika that we talked about before, when you have gotten your onions and mushrooms all in its saute dish in its pan, before you add in your vegetable stock and your thickening agents to everything, you're going to add your strips of meat to those onions and to those mushrooms, and you're going to mix it together. You're not going to remove any of the mushrooms. You're not going to remove any of the onions. You're going to use all the same amounts for all of them. You're just adding your beef to it. All right. Uh, on top of that, I would highly recommend if you're going to go for a meat and potatoes kind of beef stroganoff, I would recommend up subbing out vegetable stock for beef stock in place of your one and four, one and a half cups of vegetable stock. Absolutely. <laughs> So then, obviously, then you'd add your white wine in and add all your all your liquids. Once the beet, beef has been um, uh, been brown on all sides, you do not need to cook your beef all the way through at this point because it's going to be cooking and simmering on the plate, which will allow it to cook pretty thoroughly before it makes it to your to your dishes. I hope you guys like that. And like I said, make sure that if you have any questions about it or you want to know about it or you've got a chance to try our dishes, we would love to hear about it. Post them on Facebook. Send your pictures to us. I would love to see you guys making it. And like I said, I will be posting my TikTok for this one um, like I do always. Uh, this one is going to be a little bit later than normal just because I'm not used to uh, be not being available over the weekend, So, which we are unfortunately not available this weekend because we're going on vacation. Vacation. <laughs> so we will not be able to post my TikTok, but I'll post it for you guys and I'll put it on our Facebook page so you guys can watch me make it. But I'll be making the vegetarian version so Jay will be less enthused about it than he normally is. But he does love mushrooms. so I'll make a steak on the grill and sneak it in. He's going to ruin my vegetarian mushroom stroganoff. It will be delicious. Says him. ASMR. No, I'm just kidding. So, um, and as usual, um, all of A's recipes can also be found on our website, www.recipeandid.com. And they're listed on there under the recipes tab. And they're in PDF form, so you can print them out and put them in a binder if you want. Yeah. And yeah. for this one, you guys, uh, I am going to have, it's going to have both the mushroom stroganoff and the beef stroganoff version on it for you guys. The beef stroganoff part will be within the red sections uh, underneath the regular section for you guys if you want to add meat to your dish. But this really, truly is a delicious dish without meat. Excellent. So we're going to move on to crime now. All right. So we are moving on to crime. Yeah, I've been told I can't say it's going to be fun. So, this is exciting. This one, you could kind of say is fun, because there's minimal casualties? 
Okay. This is going to be fun. The overarching story is not about casualties. Okay, good. I'm excited. Do you know what we're doing today? I mean, you, you do know what we're I doing do. today. You told I, me, but normally you would not. I spilled the beans to you. He did spill, spill, spill the beans. Yes, I did not spill them. I spilled them. Spill. All right, I'll end the suspense. Today I'm covering John Dillinger. What? Who's Public that? Enemy Number One? Numero uno. Speaking of Public Enemy Number One, that happens to be the name of a really good, in-depth, like five-part series podcast about John Dillinger that I got some of my information from. Um, it's hosted by Justin Rimmel. Oh, okay. Who? Hosts Mysterious Circumstances. Oh, we I've listened to that one. I've not listened to him, but I knew I had heard of him before because he is a guest on Hillbilly Horror Stories often, and I listen to Hillbilly Horror Stories. Yeah. So just so you guys know, if you guys are ever interested in something with more in-depth, we will always try and give you guys a, a more in-depth audio podcast if one exists for our cases. Yeah, my, my cases are typically just like surface level. I get a lot of information from other sources and places um and i typically would tell you where i've got that that information and sources um but mine's just a, a an overview not really a deep dive um but if you want a deep dive into john dillinger um public enemy number one is a good podcast and then i also got uh quite a bit of my information from the most trusted source on the internet wikipedia the wicksters all right so John Dillinger was born on June 22nd, 1903 in Indianapolis, Indiana. His parents were John Wilson Dillinger and Mary Ellen Molly Lancaster. Dillinger's father was a grocer by trade and reportedly was a harsh man. Dillinger has said that his father was firm in his discipline, but also believed in the adage, spare the rod and spoil the child. Dillinger had an older sister named Audrey. Their mother died in 1907, just before his fourth birthday. That's, and according... That just what? seems very... I Yeah, sorry. It's just very, like... Unfortunate. It's very yeah. sad. I always have hard times with these ones, because I can... Like, the nature-nurture thing, it's... I Yeah, I don't know. I'm like, losing your mom so early, it feels like it, it just, like, pegs you in for something terrible. Yeah... But I guess there's a lot of I don't think so. Yeah. Not in this particular case, anyway. Um, according to the podcast, Enemy Number One, that I just talked about, uh, Dillinger's father did remarry, and John had a tumultuous relationship with his stepmother. But then, later on, went on to have an affair with her. What? Mm. Yes. Wild. If you want to know more about that, literally, go listen to podcast, oh Enemy Number One. That's It's insane. very good. Uh, as a teenager, John was frequently in trouble with the law for fighting and petty theft. He was noted for his bullying of smaller children. Rude. But <laughs> he quit school, and his father then feared that the city was corrupting his son. You know, that dark city of Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, prompting him to move the family to Mooresville, Indiana in 1921. Dillinger continued his rebellious behaviors, and in 1922, he was arrested for auto theft, and his relationship with his father deteriorated. In 1923, John's troubles led him to enlist in the Navy, but he deserted a few months later when his ship was docked in Boston. He was eventually dishonorably discharged some months later, so he did not last long in the Navy. In the Navy. Sorry. <laughs> what goes through my head every time I say that? Yeah. I can appreciate that. 
So John returned to Mooresville where he a, met Beryl Ethel Hovius, and the two were married in April of 1924. Her first name is Beryl? Like- Beryl. B-E-R-Y-L. Oh, yeah, there's Beryl. no, there's no, yeah, there's no way. But she went by Ethel. Okay. Uh, what is this weird date? There was, well, there was another, there's such weird dates. It's 1920s. Uh, okay. so Mary, he, uh, married her in April of 1924. Uh, he tried to settle down, but had a hard time holding down a job and saving his marriage. Unable to find work, he began planning a bank robbery oh. with his friend, Ed, Ed Singleton. His friend? His friend. Ed Singleton. John had struck a victim on the head with a large bolt wrapped in a cloth and had also had a gun which was discharged but didn't hit anyone. The two men were arrested the next day. A, a bolt? Yes, like a very large bolt. Do they... I mean, I, I'm not going to ask Like a this nut and bolt. I know bolt. that... Yeah, I know they make them that big, but how big of a bolt do you have to have to knock someone out? A pretty big bolt. I mean, really, I guess as long as it's long enough, you can knock somebody out with a small bolt. That's probably true. That's probably true. I mean, that is true. They did it. Right. So Singleton pleaded not guilty, but but after John's dad, who also happened to be the Mooresville Church deacon, discussed the matter with the prosecutor, his dad convinced John to confess to the crime and plead guilty without retaining counsel. So no lawyer involved. John just agreed to plead guilty. John was convicted of assault and battery with intent to rob and conspiracy to commit a felony. He thought he would get a light sentence, like probation based on his dad's discussion with the prosecutor, but instead was sentenced to 10 to 12 years in prison. I mean, it's bank robbery, so I really shouldn't right. do that. But like, what a douchey dad. On his way to Mooresville to testify against Singleton, John escaped his captors. He escaped. He's an escape artist. But he was apprehended in a few minutes. Oh, my God. <laughs> so he didn't do, like, Ted Bundy? No. Not this time. Okay. Uh, incarcerated at the Indiana Reformatory in Indiana State Prison, from 1924 to 1933, John began to become embroiled in a criminal lifestyle. Upon being admitted to prison, he was quoted as saying, I will be the meanest bastard you ever saw when I get out of here. Scary. That's a little terrifying. He became bitter towards society because of his long prison sentence and befriended other criminals, including seasoned bank robbers who taught John how to be a successful criminal. Also terrifying. John's father launched a campaign to have him released and was able to obtain 199 signatures on a petition. In May of 1933, after serving nine and a half years, Dillinger was paroled. Released at the height of the Great Depression, John had little prospect of finding gainful employment, so he immediately returned to crime. Well, okay. Yeah, but... That one I feel like might... You could you could fight to say that it was matter of circumstance. Yeah, I can see matter of circumstance. Because it's the Great Depression, everything's yeah. going on. I'm more thinking like, but his dad was a deacon in a very small... Like in a small town. I, I mean, I don't know. It's such a weird thing for me because I, I feel like he could have easily reached out to his dad, but then again, his dad was kind of a mean person, so. Right. Uh, so on June 21st, 1933, he robbed his first bank of a string of bank robberies, taking $10,000 from the New Carlisle National Bank in New Carlisle, Ohio. 
On August 14th, John robbed a bank in Bluffton, Ohio. He was tracked by police from Dayton, Ohio. He was captured and later transferred to Allen County Jail in Lima to be indicted in connection to the Bluffton robbery. Do you know what else is in Lima, Ohio? No. Glee. Oh. Okay. Glee is set in Lima. Do you know I once took a road trip to Lima? Because that's Glee. where Glee was from. Yeah, that's something you would do. It's a very small, boring town. I mean, I can imagine. There's not even like a poster that says Glee. Yeah, I don't think they'd want to be. Yeah. That's him. I mean. Anyway, while searching him before booking him in prison, the police discovered a document which appeared to be a prison escape plan. Earlier, while in prison, John had helped conceive a plan to enable the escape of Pete Piermont. I'm sorry, Pierpont, Russell Clark, and six others he had met while in prison. Wait, he, why did he still have that on him? Because he was helping him escape. Oh, from the prison he was just booked into. Dillinger had friends smuggle guns into their cells, which they used to escape four days after John's capture. The thought that formed up I'm sorry. The group that formed up, known as the First Dillinger Gang, consisted of Pierpont, Clark, Charles Mackley, Ed Schuess, Harry Copeland, and John Hamilton. Pierpont, Clark, and Mackley arrived in Lima on October 12, 1933, where they impersonated Indiana State Police officers, claiming they had come to extradite John to Indiana. When the sheriff asked for their credentials... Pierpont shot him dead and then released John from his cell. Oh, my God. The four men escaped back to Indiana, where they joined the rest of the gang. So Dillinger had formed a plan for his friends to escape jail. He ended up also getting caught. And then they used that plan to get him out. But then they took his plan and took and got him out of jail. Yes. Okay. On January 25th. It takes some kind of brains. It does. does. On January 25th, 1934, John and his gang were captured in Tucson, Arizona. He was extradited to Indiana. John was taken to the Lake County Jail in Crown Point, Indiana, and imprisoned to face charges for the murder of a policeman who was killed during a Dillinger gang bank robbery in East Chicago, Indiana, on January 15th, 1934. So 10 days before this. Oh, okay. That's why he was arrested. So how long had he been out from when he got out of prison? The first, that They busted him out October of 1933. And this was the, that um, killing happened on January 15th of 1934. So okay. about two months. About two months. Yeah. Yeah. So he doesn't stay out for very long. He keeps nope. getting out, but he doesn't stay out for very long Correct. before he gets caught. So he's just a bad... I mean, he's good at escaping, bad at being a criminal. Yeah. So the local Crown Point police boasted to area newspapers that the jail was escape-proof and had even posted extra guards as a precaution. However, at 9.30 a.m. on Saturday, March 3rd, 1934, just about three months after he got in, okay. so he bided his time, John was able to escape. Oh, my God. During morning exercises at the jail with 15 other inmates, John produced a pistol, catching deputies and guards by surprise, and he was able to leave the premises without firing a shot. I knew this one. It's not a real pistol, is it? Hmm. Almost immediately afterwards, talk began whether the gun John displayed was real or not. (laughs) 
Spoiler alert. Sorry. According to Deputy Deputy Ernest Blunk, uh, John had escaped using a real pistol. Oh, okay. FBI files, on the other hand, indicate that Dillinger used a carved fake pistol. Man of soap, wasn't it? No, that was a that was a fun story. Oh, okay. Uh, Sam Calhoun, a trustee who John had taken hostage in the jail, believed that John had carved the gun using a razor and some shelving in his cell. Oh, so okay. it was so just it was wooden. wooden. Okay, but it was a self uh, a, a, a self a self a shelf from his cell that was self carved. Yes, a self carved. Sally shelf sells gun. seashore sells by the seashore. She sells seashores by the seashells. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, at least here, we're near the Midwest, and um. It's very much local lore um, for this, and and so he, this particular instance is what John Dillinger was famous for around our area yeah. of um, Indiana and Chicagoland and uh, southern Wisconsin, southern Michigan, like that area. This is the one he's famous for, and a couple of years ago, Johnny Depp did a film about John Dillinger. And they filmed in Crown Point, and I remember it was a very big deal. It was very big. Did it ever come out? Yes. Oh, it did. I never saw it, but it did come out. I didn't either. Yeah. So John was indicted by a local grand jury and the Bureau of Investigations. The Bureau of Investigation organized a nationwide manhunt for him. Just hours after escape from the Crown Point jail, Dillinger reunited with his then-girlfriend, Evelyn Billy Frechette, and her sister... At her sister Patsy's Chicago apartment. According to Billy's trial testimony, John stayed with her there for almost two weeks. Okay. However, the two had actually traveled to the Twin Cities and taken lodging at the Santa Monica Apartments in Minnesota, where they stayed for 15 days from March 4th to the 19th, 1934. Dillinger then met up with John Hamilton, and the two mustered up a new gang consisting of themselves and babyface Nelson's gang, including Nelson, Hoover Van Meter, Tommy Carroll, and Eddie Green. Three days after John's escape from Crown Point, the second gang robbed a bank in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and a week later they robbed the first national bank in Mason City, Iowa. Okay, so they were all about just... They were just robbing banks. Robbing banks. Yeah, yeah. For some reason, I don't remember. I mean, I remember John Dillinger being like a bank robber. Yeah, I don't gangster know why, bank but robber. Like, in my head, I don't think I. For some reason, wasn't thinking that was like his prime. Well, what's funny is like I always associated John Dillinger as like a gangster. Yeah, like a gang member. But he's, he's not a bank robber. He's a bank. He's robber. not a gangster. He's yeah. I think I think that's what exactly what I'm kind of like right. shocked about. Right. Yeah, like Jay said, we're from the Midwest, so like this is kind of like paved in mysticism in our area so yeah. it's just very interesting these are all these are all towns we've heard of and places we've been to yeah so on tuesday march 20th 1934 john and billy moved into an apartment in st paul minnesota using the alias mr and mrs carl t hellman <laughs> sorry hellman's mayonnaise <laughs> daisy coffee the landlord went to the fbi's st paul field office to file a report including information about the couple's new hudson sedan parked in the garage behind the apartments um, she had been doing some furniture rearranging in the apartment across the hall, so she had gotten a lot of intel on them. But how did she know it was them? Just 
Sue. He was public enemy number one. Oh, so it was posted. Like, it was oh, so she everywhere. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. I just didn't know how, like. No, he. Th- this was the first time that the FBI had put out a public enemy. He oh. is the first public oh, enemy okay. in history. Interesting. That's fun. And that's why he is public enemy number one. Awesome. Um, so she had seen that. So forth. So as a result of her tip, the building was placed under surveillance by two agents, Rufus Coulter and Rusty Knowles, uh, that night. But they saw nothing unusual, mainly because the blinds were drawn. The next morning, Knowles circled the block looking for the Hudson, but observed nothing. He remained in his car while waiting. Coulter and St. Paul Police Detective Henry Cummings pull up, park, and enter the building. Meanwhile, Coulter and Cummings knocked on the door of apartment 303. Um, Billy answered, opening the door two to three inches. She said she was not dressed and to come back. Coulter told her they would wait. After waiting two to three minutes, Coulter went to the basement apartment of the caretakers, uh, Luis and Margaret Meadlinger, and asked to use the phone to call the bureau. He quickly returned to Cummings, and the two of them waited for Billy to open the door. Van Meter then appeared in the hall and asked Coulter if his name was Johnson, Van Meter being one of their cronies oh oh okay you'll remember that name from the original yeah the original um, the original john dillinger gang yeah yeah he's one of the originals um coulter said it was not and as van meter passed on the landing of the third floor coulter asked him for for a name van meter replied i am a soap salesman asked where his samples were van meter said they were in his car coulter asked if he had any credentials van meter said no and continued down the stairs Coulter waited 10 to 20 seconds, then followed Van Meter. As Coulter got to the lobby on the ground floor, Van Meter opened fire on him. Opened fire on him. Coulter hastily fled outside, chased by Van Meter, and then Van Meter ran back into the front entrance so of the Van apartment. So Van Meter is the gang, Coulter is the FBI agent? Correct. Gotcha. Okay. Recognizing Van Meter, Knowles pointed out the Ford to Coulter and told him to disable it. Coulter shot out the rear left tire. When Coulter stayed with Van Meter's Ford, Knowles went to the corner drugstore and called the local police. Then the Bureau of St. Paul's office, but could not get through because the lines were busy. Van Meter, the gang member, meanwhile, escaped by hopping on a passing coal truck. Hmm. Upon hearing Van Meter firing at Coulter, Dillinger opened fire through the door with a Thompson submachine gun, sending sending Cummings scrambling for cover. Dillinger then stepped out and fired another burst at Cummings. Cummings shot back with a revolver, but quickly ran out of ammunition. He hit Dillinger in the left calf with one of his five shots. He then hastily retreated down the stairs to the front entrance. Once Cummings retreated, Dillinger and Billy hurried down the stairs and exited through the back door and drove away in the Hudson. So it was a shootout at their apartment. So Dillinger, but Dillinger was shot. Yes. In the calf. Yes. By Cummings? Yes. Cummings and Coulter are the two FBI agents that are tailing the Dillinger gang, essentially. Correct. Okay. All right. So after the shootout, uh, John and Billy drove to Eddie Green's apartment in Minneapolis. Green called his associate, Dr. Clayton May, in downtown Minneapolis. Um, With Green, his wife, Beth, and Billy following in... Green's car, the doctor drove Dillinger to an apartment belonging to Augusta Salt, who had been providing nursing services and a bed for May's illicit patients for several years, patients he could not risk seeing at his regular office. So, breakdown. Dr. May, 
is a licensed physician, has a doctor's office and all of that. But he's also one of those gangster doctors that who takes treat. care of criminals on the side. The name sounds very familiar for some reason, so I'm assuming that he gets used in other Probably. association as well. Uh, so May treated Dillinger's wounds with antiseptics. Green visited Dillinger on Monday, April 2nd, just hours before Green would be mortally wounded by the FBI in St. Paul. Green is another gang member? Uh, I believe so, yes. Yes. Okay. He's he's a member of the illicit uh, side of the story. Whether he was actually a member of his gang, I can't remember. But oh, gotcha. Okay. He is a member of the crime family. Uh, the crime family. And then he obviously was killed after this. Yes. And he was part of this because he was one that drove Dillinger to May. Yes. Okay. Uh, Dillinger uh, stayed at Dr. May's for five days until Wednesday, April 4th. Dr. May promise, was promised 500 for his services, but received nothing. Douchey. Right. I mean, you're a bank robber. You definitely have money. Right. So after the events in Minneapolis, uh, John and Billy traveled to Mooresville to visit uh, John's father. Friday, April 6, 1934, was spent contacting family members, particularly his half-brother, Hubert Dillinger. On April 6th, Hubert and John left Mooresville at about 8 p.m. On April 7th, at approximately 3.30 a.m., they rammed a car driven by Mr. and Mrs. Joseph Manning near Noblesville, Indiana, after Hubert fell asleep behind the wheel. Oh my God, they are the worst criminals. They are. They crashed through a farm fence and about 200 feet into the woods. Both men made it back to the Mooresville farm. Swarms of police showed up at the accident scene within hours. Found in the car were maps, a machine gun magazine, a length of rope, and a bullwhip. According to Hubert, his brother planned to pay a visit with the bullwhip to his former one-armed shyster lawyer at Crown Point, Joseph Ryan, who had run off with his retainer after being replaced by Louis Piquette. At about 10.30 a.m. on April 17th, Billy, Hubert, and Hubert's wife purchased a black four-door Ford V8, registering it in the name of Mrs. Fred Penfield. So that's Billy's car now. Okay. It's but that's his half-brother and his half-brother's sister? Yes. And Billy, his characters. girlfriend. Oh, oh. Billy's his girlfriend. Billy's his girlfriend. Yeah, she was at the shootout before. Yeah, 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 yeah. For some reason, I didn't make the connection that Billy was his girlfriend. I yes. thought Billy was another gang member. No, Billy's his girlfriend. Gotcha. Okay. Um, on Sunday, April 8th, the Dillingers enjoyed a family picnic while the FBI had the farm under surveillance nearby. Later in the afternoon, suspecting they were being watched, the group left in separate cars. Billy drove the new Ford V8 with two of Dillinger's nieces. Dillinger was on the floor of that car. Eventually, Norman, driving the V8, proceeded with Dillinger and Billy to Chicago, where they separated from Norman. The following afternoon, Monday, April 9th, Dillinger had an appointment at a tavern on North State Street. Sensing trouble, Billy went in first. She was promptly arrested by agents, but refused to reveal Dillinger's whereabouts. So she went in and got arrested. They're literally the worst criminals. I mean, he's pretty smart for not going in. I also have to say that they might have been some of the worst cops. Yeah, those are pretty bad cops, too. Because Dillinger was waiting in his car outside the tavern. Yeah. Like, he was in this car. She got out of the car that he was also in and walked in. that seems dumb. Uh, so he was in that car outside the tavern and then he drove off unnoticed. Um, unf- unfortunately, uh, meh. 
star-crossed lovers, the two would never see each other again. Oh. See what I mean? It's kind of sad. It's kind of sad, but also you're but criminals. So criminal. But he hasn't really criminal. killed anybody yet. Not directly, I guess. Not for not trying. That's true. He has tried to kill people. So Dillinger reportedly became despondent after Billy was arrested. The other gang members tried to talk him out of rescuing her, but Van Meter encouraged him by saying that he knew where they could find bulletproof vests. Oh, God. That Friday morning, late at night, Dillinger and Van Meter took a hostage. Warsaw, Indiana police officer Judd Pittinger. They marched Pittinger at gunpoint into the police station where they sold several more, where they stole several more guns and bulletproof vests. The Bureau, or Division of Investigations, which throughout this I've been referencing, is actually the precursor to the federal jurisdiction and 1935 name change to FBI. Oh, okay. okay. So this was the precursor of the FBI. Uh, received a call Sunday morning, April 22nd, that John Dillinger and several of his Confederates were hiding out in a small vacation, vacation lodge called Little Bohemia near present-day Manitowish Waters, Wisconsin. Special Agent in Charge Purvis and several BOI agents approached the lodge when three men exited the building and began to drive off. Agents yelled for the car to stop, but the men had been drinking and did not hear the agents. Agents opened up fire on the car, and the driver was killed. They're the worst criminals. No, that was the cops that shot this car. Well, yeah, but... Because Dillinger and some of the gang were upstairs in the lodge... That wasn't them in their car. Oh, who was in the car? Three randos from this hotel. Oh, my God. So Dillinger and some of his gang were upstairs in the lodge, and they decided to then start shooting out the windows. Oh, my God. Uh, While the BOI agents ducked for cover, Dillinger and his men got out the back of the lodge toward the lake and were able to get out of the area very quietly. And this is where I'm like, okay, John John Dillinger is an idiot. But then I'm like, okay, but these cops are kind of buffoons. They kind of were buffoons. By July 1934, Dillinger had dropped completely out of sight. He had drifted into Chicago where he went under the alias of Jimmy Lawrence. Working as a clerk, Dillinger found that in a large metropolis like Chicago, he was able to lead an anonymous existence for a while. What he did not realize was that the center of the federal agent's dragnet happened to be in Chicago. When the authorities found Dillinger's blood-splattered getaway car on a Chicago stride street, they were positive that he was in the city. Oh, my God. So this is just a little note that I just found interesting. I don't really think it has anything to do with the story. It's just interesting about John. Uh, So John Dillinger had plastic surgery and had some moles and things removed. Nothing like wildly changing his appearance. He had a couple moles removed. He had a scar on his lip fixed. And that was about it. So, like, it wasn't for the purpose of, like, changing his identity or anything like that. It was just superficial plastic surgery. But eventually, he would go on to have additional plastic surgery to have his fingerprints removed. Oh, he was the one that had his fingerprints removed. Yes. Okay. That process just in case we were all wondering, is that the hands get sterilized and made aseptic with antiseptics, uh, thoroughly washed with soap and water, and used sterile gauze afterwards to keep them clean. Okay. Next, a cutting instrument or knife was used to expose the lower skin. So in other words, they would take off the epidermis to expose the derma. And then alternately, the acid and the alkaloid was applied as was necessary to produce the desired results. 
meaning they would literally peel back the layer of skin and then burn off the finger. So yeah, chemicals. Yeah, so essentially they would chemically alter the. They would essentially produce scar tissue in your epithelial layer right. to cover up the to, the, the uh, ridges get rid of that you the get. The ridges in your fingerprints. Jay knows this. I don't have fingerprints, so. He's got some fingerprints. Yeah, but they never show up on anything. All right. So, we're going to talk a little bit about Rita Polly Hamilton. She was a teen runaway from Fargo, North Carolina. Hi, Rita. She met Anna Ivanova Akaleva, also known as Anna Companias, okay. a.k.a. Anna Sage, in Gary, Indiana, and worked periodically as a sex worker in Anna's brothel. Oh, wait. Anna had a brothel? Yes. Wait. Anna's a madam. Wait, 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 wait. Who who is the Rita? Rita worked Rita as, a, as a sex worker. Worked at a, a sex worker in Anna's brothel. At Anna's brothel. Gotcha. Yes. Okay. Keep going. Dillinger and Hamilton, uh, Hamilton being Polly, who happened to be a like Billy lookalike, like looked just like Billy. Met in June nineteen thirty four at the Barrel of Fun nightclub, located on Wilson Avenue. Dillinger introduced himself as Jimmy Lawrence and said he was a clerk at the Board of Trade. Okay. 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 So, you've now met Polly. You've also met Anna, Anna Sage. Wait, so... Okay. Okay. Polly's okay. not super important moving forward, but Anna Sage, the madam, is... So Division of Investigations Chief J. Edgar Hoover created a special task force headquartered in Chicago to locate Dillinger. On July 21st, Anna Sage, a madam from the brothel in Gary that we talked about, also known as the woman in red, contacted the FBI. She was a Romanian immigrant threatened with deportation for low moral character and offered agents information on Dillinger in exchange for their help in preventing her deportation. Oh, okay. So she was already in in violation of, or almost about to be deported. Yes. Okay. And Dillinger was dating one of her sex workers. So the FBI agreed to her terms, but she was later deported nonetheless, which I just, I do actually find that a little upsetting. She was deported? She was eventually deported. Even though they agreed to her terms. Anyway, uh, Anna Sage revealed that Dillinger was spending his time with another sex worker, uh, Polly Hamilton, and that she and the couple were going to see a movie together on the following day. She agreed to wear an orange dress so police could easily identify her. She was unsure which of the two theaters they would attend, the Biograph or the Marlboro. Um, So Anna and John and... Polly were going to a movie. Anna agreed to wear an orange dress so that the police could identify that, that group. group. Okay. On December 15th, 1934, pardons were issued by the Indiana governor, Harry G. Leslie, for the offenses from which uh, Anna was convicted. Um, Anna stated that on Sunday afternoon, July 22nd, Dillinger asked her whether she wanted to go to the show with them, Polly and him. She asked him what show he was going to see, and he said he would like to see the theater around the corner, meaning the Biograph Theater. 
She stated she was unable to leave the house to inform Purvis or Martin about Dillinger's plans to attend the biograph. But as they were going to have fried chicken for the evening meal, she told Polly she had nothing in which to fry the chicken and was going to the store to get some butter. That while at the store, she called Mr. Purvis and informed him of Dillinger's plans to attend the biograph that evening, at the same time obtaining the butter. She then returned to the house so Polly would not be suspicious that she went out to call anyone. Gotcha. So Polly is none the wiser in this. A team of federal agents and officers from police forces from outside of Chicago was formed, along with a very small number of Chicago police officers. Among them was Sergeant uh, Martin Zarkovich, the officer whom Anna had acted as an informant. At the time, federal officials felt the Chicago police had been compromised and therefore could not be trusted. Hoover and Purvis also wanted more of the credit. Okay. Not wanting to take the risk of another embarrassing escape of Dillinger, the police were split into two groups. On Sunday, one team was sent to the Marlboro Theater on the city's west side, while another team surrounded the Biograph Theater on Lincoln Avenue on the north side. At approximately 8.30 p.m., Sage, Hamilton, and Dillinger were observed entering the Biograph Theater, which was showing the crime drama Manhattan Melodrama, starring Clark Gable, Myrna Loy, and William Powell. During the stakeout, the Biograph's manager thought the agents were criminals setting up a robbery. He called the Chicago police on the FBI. Oh, no. Who dutifully responded and had to be waved off by the federal agents who told them they were on a stakeout for an important target. Oh, God. When the film ended, Purvis stood by the front door and signaled Dillinger's exit by lighting a cigar. Both he and the other agents reported that Dillinger turned his head and looked directly at the agent as he walked by, glanced across the street, and then moved ahead of his female companions, reaching into his pocket but failed to extract his gun and ran into a nearby alley. Other accounts stated Dillinger ignored a command to surrender, whipped out his gun, then headed for the alley. Agents already had the alley closed off. Three men pursued Dillinger into the alley and fired. Clarence Hurt shot twice, Charles Winstead shot three times, and Herman Hollis once. Dillinger was hit from behind and fell face first to the ground. Dillinger was struck four times with two bullets grazing him and one causing a superficial wound to the right side. The fatal bullet entered through the back of his neck, severed his spinal cord, passed into his brain, and exited just under his right eye, severing two sets of veins and arteries. An ambulance was summoned, although it was soon apparent Dillinger had died from the gunshot wounds. He was officially pronounced dead at Alexian Brothers Hospital. Dillinger was shot and killed by the special agents on July 22, 1934, at approximately 10.30 p.m., according to New York Times report the next day. Dillinger's death came only two months after the deaths of... Do you know who? No. Fellow notorious criminals. Al Capone? Bonnie and Clyde. Oh. Yeah. I thought that was super interesting when I saw that. That was very interesting. Yeah. So his death came only two months after the death of fellow notorious criminals, Bonnie and Clyde. There were reports of people dipping their handkerchiefs and skirts into the pool of blood that had formed as Dillinger lay in the alley as keepsakes. Souvenir hunters madly dipped newspapers in the blood that stained the pavement. Handkerchiefs were whipped out and used to mop out the blood. God, that was a quote from the paper. That was so gross. 
Um, Dillinger's body was available for public display at the Cook County Morgue. An estimated 15,000 people viewed the corpse over a day and a half. That is so weird. Right? And as many as four death masks were also made. I knew that. I knew there were a bunch of death masks. Uh, Dillinger is buried at Crown Hill Cemetery in Indianapolis. So, speaking of death masks, fun fact, we talked about us going on vacation, right? We did. We did. We happen to be going to a crime museum. Yes, we are. One of those death masks is in that crime museum. <gasps> we'll take a picture and post it. That we're going to see. We're going to take a picture and post it. We are. I'm very excited. That is exciting. Yeah. Um, so, in October 2019, this was really weird and interesting to me uh in october 2019 indiana state officials approved plans to exhume the remains buried in dillinger's grave i do remember at the request of dillinger's relatives who believed that the man shot at the biograph theater was not actually dillinger the fbi has dismissed this claim as a conspiracy theory theory the exhumation was scheduled for december 31st 2019 according to information from january 2020 dillinger's body will not be exhumed his nephew and his niece quit those plans, and History Channel also canceled the idea. So I'm assuming History Channel wanted to do a big thing on it. Thing on it, yeah. That sounds all right. But that is the not lighthearted, but a little less painful story of John Dillinger yeah, as compared to that. some of my previous episodes. Because A did tell me at the end of last episode, like, Please don't do a murder next time. It's yeah. so sad. I mean, I just, yeah. He didn't say quite so whiny. I was yeah, just was very being a person. Um, so I wanted to do something that wasn't murder focused. It was a little lighter. It's yes. a little lighter, I think. Uh, not murder focused. This was bank robbery, escape, bungled police chases. I mean, there's a lot of bungledness in this. <laughs> there's a lot of bungles from both sides. Uh, so Bungle. I hope you enjoyed this one. I actually enjoyed it a lot. It was fun. It was interesting. There was a lot of names, but it was very there interesting. There were a lot of names. I tried to avoid as many names as I could. Uh, Ironically, I took out about half the names that were in articles that I, I had can, found. I can appreciate that. I'm surprised yeah. I never made it to Florida. Never went to Florida for some reason. I just feel like all mobsters end up going to Florida. But he wasn't really a mobster, so I guess that's... Probably yeah. why he never made it to Florida. Nope, he wasn't a mobster. He was a well, that was a fun episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. All right. Thanks for listening to us, guys. Yeah, don't forget to rate and subscribe. We appreciate it. Talk to you later. So thank you guys for tuning in. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at recipe and id so that is the at sign recipe and and id you can also find all of our episodes on itunes stitcher and spotify or any other podcast platform that you use you can also visit our website www.recipeandid.com where you'll find all of our episodes and recipes featured in the show there's also contact information if you'd like to reach out and suggest a topic so keep your bellies full and don't be a criminal 